0: WHOOP is a fitness wearable that provides personalized insights on the performance of your sleep, how recovered your body is, and how much stress and exertion you put on your body throughout the day.
1: Each day when you get up, WHOOP gives you a recovery score based on your sleep, resting heart rate, and heart rate variability that can be used as an indicator for how to approach your day
0: app has built-in features like strain coach which gives you target exertion goals to work out optimally at your body's recovery level whoop automatically detects and categorizes your activity so there's no need to start and stop your workout
1: you can analyze your heart rate throughout the entirety of your workout and also track your calories burned max heart rate and average heart rate it's the perfect way to train The app also has
0: a built-in sleep coach, which lets you know how much sleep you should be getting based on your expected activity level for the following day.
1: So you can wake up and be recovered based on your performance goals. Whoop is offering 15% off with the code VELONEWS at checkout. Go to whoop, W-H-O-O-P dot com and enter VELONEWS at the checkout to save 15%. Sleep better recover faster, and train smarter. Optimize your performance with Whoop today.
2: Uh, Let me back up. I was was talking about when I was, I was a point of reference when you were putting your resumes in and I was getting calls from fire chiefs and they were saying, well, what do you think about Tyler? Would you feel comfortable if a guy like Tyler showed up and your house was on fire? And and a lot of times I was getting truly upset and I said, stop, man. Like, If Tyler came to my house, I would be counting my lucky stars. If you have 12 with Tyler, he's going to run circles around you.
0: Sprint finishes, crashes, concussions, loss of a best friend, victories in all three grand tours, retirement, transition to real world as a fireman and EMT, working on the front lines, surviving COVID-19, and back to helping people on the front lines again. This week on Put Your Socks On, we speak to one of our close friends, Tyler Farrar. Hello, and welcome to a special episode of Put Your Socks On. No, the silky smooth voice that you are listening to right now is not that of Angus Morton, but myself, Bobby Julik, as Gus is traveling this week. Fear not, as I have recruited the man with the best hair on TV, Tour de France, an Olympic veteran, NBC sports commentator, neighbor, and longtime friend, Mr. Christian Vandeveld, to sit in on this being our first co-host episode of Fizzo. Christian, how are you doing?
2: I'm doing good, man. Yeah, yeah, I see in your notes you started going to put some jabs in and we about lack of uh, hair and makeup in the green room, but I'm, I'm doing just fine. I'm, I'm excited to be here today. Thank
0: you. No, you know, I, I know you're used to bigger things. Um, you know, green room treatment, makeup artist, personal assistant to get you an espresso, but Hey man, we're uh, a social distancing podcast, even though you're just down the road. So I hope you can hang with us for, uh, for the next hour or so.
2: I'll do my best. Thanks for having me, dude.
0: Big news this week is the U.S. Olympic team long team was selected. Announcement was live stream hosted by your coworker Christian, Steve Schlanger, along with the honorary captain of the Olympic cycling team, Patrick Dempsey. Of course, all these riders will not make the final selection when the time comes, but this is a big deal. And congratulations to all the riders and staff that have the opportunity to represent Team USA, hopefully next year, in Tokyo 2021.
2: So on the women's mountain bike side, we've got Kate Courtney, Leah Davison, Chloe Woodruff, Aaron Huff, Haley Badden, and Hannah
0: Finchkamp. And in the men's mountain bike, we have Christopher Blevins and Keegan Swenson.
2: And the women's road, Chloe Digert, Corinne Rivera, national champion Ruth Winder, Taylor Wiles, Leah Thomas, Lauren Stevens, Catherine Hall, former World Time Trial champion Amber Nieben, and Krista Double-Hickok.
0: And on the men's roadside, we have a Fizzo veteran, TJ Van Garderen, Ian Garrison, national champion Alex Howes, Lawson Craddock, Brendan McNulty, Nelson Paulus, and Sepp Koos.
2: And the real, some of the real hitters right here, especially the current world champions in the team pursuit, starting with Chloe Dygert, Jennifer Valente, actually a silver medal as well, Emma White, Lily Williams, Christina Birch, Kendall Ryan, Megan Jastrab, Maddie Goodby, Mandy Marquette. So we got some crazy firepower going there, Bobby.
0: Yeah, we do. And the members of the men's track, we have Adrian Hegvery, Daniel Holloway, and Gavin Hoover. Yeah, like I said, not all these riders are going to be able to represent the USA, but Man, we've got some talent there spread all over all disciplines. I'm pretty excited about that.
2: And some interesting news coming out of Spain right now. What was before, Mitchelton Scott is now the Manuela Foundation, unveiled the new sponsor just a week ago. So it's going to be interesting to see what's going to happen with this team and in the future, and really if we're going to see more of this due to the pandemic in the closing months or weeks coming into what will hopefully be the Tour de France. I don't know. I, I unfortunately think that's going to be. There's a lot more teams are going to be actually either folding or combining together with other teams. I don't know, Bobby. I hope that I'm wrong. You know, they just need to see a return on their investments. That, that being the sponsors is all coming from private money right now, and they don't have any return on investment without any racing. So we need the tour. We need a couple few races to come back, and without that, we don't have anything.
0: That's true. I mean, we 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 know that teams are suffering, but then we we're also reading in the news that. Uh, some teams are signing riders to contract extensions. So I think it's going to be a little bit touch and go, but let's just hope that we come out of this on the other end in a, in a, in a better way. Yeah. The other thing that uh, I know I've spoken about with you before offline, but the discussion about squad numbers printing, printed on the rider's jersey. Thought about this in the tour for all those years when you're taking off your number every day. But do you think, I mean, being a TV announcer, do you think this will make it easier or harder for you guys as announcers and fans to actually recognize the riders are out there.
2: I think it'd be easier. I mean, I I don't. First of all, the numbers that are on the current, the bib numbers they have in the back of the jerseys are so small as it is. So if you could make them four times bigger and have the set number for the entire year, just is a no brainer to me. I've been pounding my fist on the table for years about this. So yes, I would love to see this happen. I think it'd be great revenue producer for the teams, especially for famous riders to have a, a number that would hopefully even go throughout their career. So if you had a Peter Sagan or Bobby Julik or whatever your favorite number is, if that was available. And I think it'd be easier. The big, biggest hiccup a lot of people think is when they get called up, if you have a crash or need some kind of service, when you're in the Peloton, you just, all you have to say is Ineos number 2299, whatever that is first. And I, I don't think it would be a big deal. And I think it would be really good for the fans to, first of all, they could, have their favorite jersey and number. It's not just the jersey, but the actual person and have their name on the back. I think it'd be great for the longevity of, of the sport and to really ha- have that of appreciation of your favorite riders. And it could be something that, that could be looked into for the CPA, really the union for the cyclist to really get a little bit more clout.
0: Okay. I got to ask then, Christian, if you were racing and you got to choose your number, what would it be?
2: 22. I don't have to even think about that one. It's always been my favorite number. I was born on May 22nd. I don't know for, for since I was a kid, I always like, didn't matter what it was. It always had to be double anything. So I used to had, remember those number plates on the BMX bikes. I had 99 on that. And then of course, when I you know looked up to Wayne Gretzky, that even had more meaning to me, but then yeah, 22, I love it.
0: Yeah. Being a Denver Bronco fan my whole life, I would have to choose number seven, John Elway. Like, yep, yeah, number seven, number seven. And, um, then I would have my my agents contact him and, you know, play golf with him or something like that. But yeah, I think it's a great idea. I mean, they do it in NASCAR. You know, Jimmy Johnson, he's associated with a number. That number sells jerseys, sells hats, sells T-shirts. I think it's a very interesting idea, and I hope more comes out of it. And this is kind of funny because, you know, Gus is not here, so we get to speak about his brother. So ongoing these last couple episodes, both men and women, we've just seen that Everstein record just get just lowered almost every week. And last week, Gus actually said during the podcast that we haven't heard much from the guys. So maybe he got off the podcast, just mentioned it to his brother because Lachlan Morton set an Everstein record of 7 hours, 32 minutes and 54 seconds last Saturday. We seem to like I said, we seem to talk about this every other week. But Lachlan is a very special dude, right? I mean, we see him all over social media uh, doing amazing rides, events, or challenges. This kid, this kid is a special athlete for sure.
2: No, oh, yeah, I I had the room with him in 2012 before he even signed with Garmin that year. And the first thing I said is, I'm sorry that you have to room with me. He's like, why? You're, you're a legend, mate. And I was like, oh, you're making it worse. I'm like, no. you're like. He's like, well, I, I just feel bad that you have to room with the old guy. And he's like, oh, this is going to be great. And honestly, Bobby, it was like one of the best weeks I've had. It was such a breath of fresh air having him there. His maturity level was 10x, some of the more senior riders on the team. Um, I, I found myself talking with him for different subjects. Um, as you well know, we don't even talk about cycling half the time. During the cycling races, but it was even better with Lockie. And you know, on, watching him do what he's been doing as of late doesn't surprise me at all. You know, he, he's just he's he's cut from different silk, and uh, he does what he likes to do. And for that matter, this Eversteen record, there's no way he even prepared for this. This is probably off of the cuff. I think I even read that him and his dad were having to, at a barbecue, and he decided to do it the night before. So this doesn't surprise me. <laughs> he's got unlimited talent, especially at altitude. Um, but it, it's been really fun to see him what he's done over these last two years and really find uh, his true person on the bike.
0: Yeah, like you mentioned, he not only did it at altitude, he did it at extreme altitude between 2200 meters and 2400 meters on a basically a 2k straight up straight down wrist canyon in Colorado. And I think he's on to something here because I've been with Talking about it, I'm like, hey, what would improve the time? Obviously, the descent. If it's a twisty, windy descent, that's going to be an issue. I remember when Jens Volk did his Everstein, he said that it was harder getting down the mountain safely than actually getting up the mountain. But he did it 42 times, reaching speeds of like supposedly up to 120K an hour on the descent. Like that. That, that is just nuts to me. Like in the middle of the night, or you know, obviously it only took him seven and a half hours, so it probably wasn't in the middle of the night, but you're getting tired. And I don't know about you, Christian, but anytime my speedometer went over 100, I was on the brakes. And he was probably still in the super tuck, you know, great. But one of the coolest thing is, is the response, the classy response from Keegan Swenson who congratulated him on, on the effort. So I don't know, is there a little rivalry here between these two? I think I smell another attempt coming soon from old Keegan.
2: Oh yeah. And I I could see Lockie, like I said, I'm sure he didn't prepare for this. I'm sure he just decided to do it that morning or the night before. So I'm sure he could go faster. I'm sure a lot of these guys could go faster, and especially like you're talking about how high he did it at, you know, over 7,000 feet. But, you, you know, back to Lockheed, though, would I love to see him racing for the podium positions at World Tour races? Of course I would. But that's just not him. It's just not the way he, he works as a, as an athlete and he's found his way and it's a lot more fun to see him be happy and and do some extraordinary feats like he does on the bike. I mean, what he did on the trail just a couple of weeks ago was incredible What he did in the UK last year. Um, he is, he's like the modern day Tinker Juarez these days.
0: Yeah. I think, uh, Jonathan Vodders and the EF education first team with their alternative race program, um, is really seeing the benefits of that, not only with him, but with Alex Howes. you know, Taylor Finney did a lot of stuff last, last year, giving these guys something to do during this, you know, strange pandemic time that we're in, uh, keeping the, the, the eyeballs on, on the jerseys and on the riders. I think it's great. Agreed, man.
2: I would love to see it. We'll see you even more, but hopefully we get to see some real race in the near
0: future. You know, I had a I had a dream about bike racing the other day for the first time in three, four months. And it was like, I turned on the TV and it was actually on and it was like nothing had happened. And yeah, I, I, I miss it. I think everybody misses sports and I know there's a lot more important things in the world than sports right now, but I almost lose track of the month of the year that we're in because I always associate certain races with certain months. And here we are middle of June should be like, you know, almost Dauphiné should be over. Everyone should be prepping for the national championships and the tour and instead You know, I don't even know what month it is because that's not happening. But like you said, hopefully we will um, have some racing and have some sports entertainment quite soon. We have had today's guest on our list for quite a while now. And finally, he is here with us. Gus and I have talked about doing a Where Are They Now? segment of the show for months. And I cannot honestly think of a better person or example to kick this off. So... I'm going to admit it's going to be hard to follow this one up, but uh, we're going to set the bar high. Hello, Tyler Farrar, and welcome to Put Your Socks On. Thanks for having me. Man, I mean, there is so much to tell about your story. I mean, you are arguably one of the best sprinters, if not the best sprinter of your generation. You've won stages in all Grand Tours. Um, not many people can can say that, including the only American to win on the 4th of July when you did that in the Tour de France on stage 3 also an honorary citizen of Belgium kind of k- kind of a lot lot to uh to take in there but tell us about your start in in cycling and um is it true that you won the Tour de Abitibi in in 2012
3: 2002 uh yeah i did <laughs> 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 yeah i just i I grew up riding bikes. Um, my parents both rode bikes, not competitively, just for fun. Um, and I grew up in an area that was amazing for it. Um, and I was a super competitive little kid. I just wanted to be in sports. Uh, I'm also terrible at like every traditional American sport. Uh, if it involves a ball, it doesn't go well. So <laughs> I was like just kind of like, well, what can I do? Well, I seem to be pretty good at riding a bike. And I remember being like, 11 or 12 years old and just begging my parents to take me to a bike race. And, and they finally did. And it just kind of went from there. And it actually happened. Um, yeah, I grew up cross country ski racing and bike racing, which is not necessarily the traditional approach for most kids in the US, just for the simple reason that I couldn't play baseball or basketball or anything to save my life. And this is all up in
0: the, the Seattle area?
3: Yeah, I grew up in a town called Wenatchee. It's uh about two and a half hours uh east of Seattle, basically right in the middle of Washington State. And it's I mean, it's a mountain biking Mecca. It's got amazing road riding. It's you know, kind of a, a smaller town. Um, it's grown a lot now, but when I was a kid it was pretty small and just kind of recreation, paradise there. It was right up in the Cascade Mountains. So I mean I grew up like hiking and mountain climbing with my dad a lot too. Um so it's my whole kind of childhood life was built around like endurance activities
0: so you started off in in the u.s scene with jelly belly and then went to maxis but in in um, 2006 you signed with kofidis that i find that you know being a an american that rode for kofidis myself i find that a very interesting choice what influenced your choice to move to kofidis that year
3: you know, it was a weird decision. If you'd asked me closer in on it, I would have said it was a mistake. Now with some more perspective, I don't think it was. Yeah, I I turned pro on the U.S. circuit straight out of juniors. Did three years on that circuit and had some good success. But I was always racing a blended program with the U.S. national team where I would spent half the year on the under-23 stuff in Europe and then the other half on the NRC in the U.S., and I just ended up having a lot of exposure to COFIDIS during that because at the time they had uh, a really strong kind of talent identification program going within their team. Um, they actually had one of their directors that they sent to all the big espoir races all over Europe just to watch guys and, and make contact with them. So in 2004, I want to stage at Tour de l'Avenir, um, but I actually already had. I was only 20 years old. I actually already had a contract with with HealthNet Maxis the the next year. I'd already signed. Uh and Cofidis offered me a contract basically on the spot when I won that stage. Um I had a big meeting with them and I said, Look, I'm only 20. Uh I'm not I I'm from the US. It'd be a really big jump to go full time to Europe. I think I need one more year. And we basically just kind of had a gentleman's agreement to uh to wait a year. Um, and then they stayed really in contact with me through that whole year. I had another pretty, pretty damn good year as a under 23 rider and on the U S circuit. And yeah, just the way they kept in contact with me throughout the whole year, I felt really good about going to that team. It seemed like they were really keyed up on developing riders and, and kind of creating this cadre of young talent within the team. So yeah, I signed with them. And it was funny, I hadn't been contacted by any other, at the time it was called the Pro Tour, teams uh, up to that point. Um, and I signed the the Cofidis contract and then got a phone call like a week later from Johan Brunel. And it was this kind of funny, like, just assumption, like, okay, so we'll give you the contract and you'll sign it. And and then you'll be on, uh, I guess it was Discovery at that point. I was like, oh, this is awkward. I, I signed with Cofidis like a week ago. <laughs> so. Didn't oh, rude. I didn't,
2: I didn't know about that tie.
3: Yeah. Which is funny. Actually, you know, my years at Cofidis were kind of a mixed bag. And, uh, I, again, like now with more perspective, I'm glad it went the way it did big time. Um, but at the time it was like when things weren't going well with Cofidis, uh, I was like, Oh, I made such a mistake. I could have been there. Uh, you know, grass is always greener. I totally kicked myself on that one. But, uh, but in the end, I'm glad it played out the way it did. And what was the living situation then? Where, did you go
2: straight to living in Ghent in 06?
3: No. If I had done that, I probably would have had a much easier run, I think, in, uh, in Europe at the, in the early days. Uh, they wanted me to live in anywhere in France. That was their deal when I signed with CO for this. They said, look, uh, we want, I didn't speak French at the time. Like when I signed that contract, I knew like five words in French. Um, they're like, we want you to learn French as quick as possible. We uh you know, we just want to get you spun up. So we don't really care where you live in France, uh, but you have to live in France. Uh their headquarters were up by Lille. They offered to kind of set me up in Lille. Uh pretty happy I said no to that. <laughs> oh <my God. laughs> yeah. No kidding, Jesus, yeah. Couldn't be yeah, any that, worse. That would have been pretty bad. Um but Saul Raisin was writing for Credit Agricole at the time. Um, he and I had come through the junior national team together and the under-23 national team together. And he owned an apartment in Beausoleil just outside Monaco. And uh, he offered to rent me a room. And so I went down there. You know, he loved it down there. He said how good it was. There was, uh, you know, other, other riders down in that area. So I went down there and i lived uh i lived in his apartment for that whole first year unfortunately he ended up having that horrific crash like a month into the the first se- that year so i only lived with him for a really short period of time and then he was gone and that was a shit show but uh yeah i was just kind of on my own there in uh, in Soleil trying to figure it out my wife was in her final year at college so she ended up moving over the second she graduated in june but i did January to June, basically by myself there. And I did not integrate very well. I uh, I learned French. That was good. Uh, it was sink or swim. I think it's a lot different down there now. I think you can get by with English a lot more than uh, you could at that time. I just remember like weird little events. You know, my bank that they set me, COVID just got me like a credit Agricole bank account that they were depositing my money into. And no one in the bank spoke English. So I would like have to like walk into the bank and like I couldn't figure out they had some weird restriction on like what I could take out of ATMs. So I'd like I could get like two hundred Euros out of an ATM and then i my card would be maxed out for a week. And I'm like, <laughs> I'm basically living in Monaco and I get two hundred Euros a week. This is not working. And like trying to go into the bank with a dictionary like please give me my money.
2: Uh... <laughs> okay, so for all the listeners at home, going from Lille to going down to the south of France is kinda of like going from gary indiana saying that that's where the headquarters want to live in gary to uh, let's let's say santa barbara i don't know what would be equivalent like monaco the riviera
3: yeah i mean as glitzy and as it gets i guess but yeah uh honestly as cool as monaco is as like fancy and glamorous as it sounds that is not a good fit for me personally i am not a glamorous and fancy kind of guy um, So the the thing that a lot of people find cool about it, I did not find cool for myself personally. You know, so I I made a few clients. I remember riding with you, Bobby, like late in that year, and I think I was a mess by the time I connected with you to because you were living in Nice, and uh, I think I was kind of a mess at that point trying to figure out. You know, I was, I was second guessing myself a lot of my decision to go to Cofidis, if I could cut it just as a rider in the Pro Tour, all that. So basically, by summer. Ah, uh, Steph had moved over. My wife, Steph, had moved over at that point, and she was not digging it there either. Really, one, we were on a Neo Pro contract, trying to live in one of the most expensive places in the world, uh, so super broke, not integrated, didn't have any really friends in the community, and we were just t- we wanted to tap out immediately. Uh, we finally decided it was easiest to just force it through the season, and then we uh, decided to move to Belgium the next year, simply because I had connections up there, I'd been in the under 23 program, I knew some people. So, I, well, we'll we'll just try. If it doesn't work for a year, then we'll go somewhere else. Maybe we'd try Girona. I kind of sometimes I wish I had tried Girona as well just cuz I think it was a pretty good setup down there the more I now when I have perspective looking back on it. Uh, I could say there's definitely a trend through my whole career of me being really really stubborn and forcing things my own way even if it's not the uh, the smartest approach. Hence refusing to live in Girona where everyone else lives, insisting on starting my career at Cofidis instead of an English-speaking team, all that. I just kind of took the hard route, uh, it seems like, at every turn early on. My, but, my, uh, liver, my liver thanks to you that you didn't move to Girona. Yeah, <laughs> especially at that point in my life. At least I was slightly more mature by the time you met me, believe it or not. <laughs> <laughs>
0: You definitely took the road less traveled there. I mean, I, I had a lot of respect for you and kind of scratched my head being a rider from Cofidis uh, early on in my career as well. But, you know, those, those lessons that you learn in, in hindsight, you know, definitely come back to help you in the future. So, so then after your two seasons at Cofidis, you decide to move to, over to Garmin and you stayed there for quite a while. Was that your favorite team that you rode for? How did that come about because you had some amazing success during that period?
3: Yeah, I uh you know, my 2 years at Cofidis, like I said, were a mixed bag. It didn't always go great, but I had a few kind of moments that went really well and I think showed some potential. And that was also right when all the the mess was happening in in cycling in general with the scandals and you know, you know, Floyd and all that. And so it was a weird p- spot to be as this young guy who's kind of spending a lot of races, getting his head kicked in going, God is, is like, you know, is doping the only route to success in cycling? Is that what do you do? I mean, what, where do you go as for a team that isn't going to make you do that? It was, it was a weird place to be. And then uh, when Jonathan Botters contacted me, that he was, you know, it wasn't that slipstream Garmin, didn't exist before but they were a little team they were like a development team and you know 2008 was the year they made the jump to the big time so when he contacted me for that it was it was super exciting because the whole ethos of that team was was kind of not going down that road um, which was very appealing to me and yeah I got there and you know it took that team had growing pains for sure because it was such a different approach to cycling in general some of those I think were easier for me than maybe more established guys on the team. I don't know. Uh, I was still young enough that maybe I could not get thrown by just how weird that team did things at times, but I loved it. Yeah. It just ended up being a good fit. Maybe not even as much from a management standpoint, but just from the group of writers that he put together. I mean, I mean, you know, Christian, that was some of my best friends through my whole career still now post-cycling. And, you know, it was a, it was a unique group of guys that you know, for whatever reason, the chemistry was right. And everyone was at the right stage in their career to be there at that point in time. And it was so fun. It was like going to races was, you look forward I mean, you know, you never dreaded like, oh God, I got to go be at a race for two weeks or three weeks or a month or whatever. It was like, oh, I'm basically like going and hanging out with my bros for for a month in France in July. Sweet. <laughs> so so Ty, during that
2: 08, and we raced not that much together in 08, but I'm, I'm interested to hear when you started having that confidence in yourself to start thinking that you could really bang bars in the front during that year or the next year. When, when really was it that you had that?
3: Oh eight, like we did this some crazy altitude camp in Silver City in the winter. It started all good. I like, I like took the leader's jersey in California, but then dropped out in the leader's jersey because I was sick in like February. And then uh, the classics didn't go well. I didn't have a great spring, and so I kind of like wasn't really in the a team for the rest of the year with the team i was doing like the the lower races i didn't go to giro with you guys uh, i thought i was going to the tour in hindsight i have no idea why i thought i was going to the tour but i was so sure i was going to be on that tour team <laughs> just <laughs> you never irrational had confidence. confidence i yeah. was just irrational confidence i was Just mind blown that I wasn't selected for the tour in 2008, uh, with, with absolutely no argument, no valid argument, why I should have been there. But uh, anyway, I got so angry about that, that I just, I don't know. It was like a, a switch flipped and I, I trained crazy hard through July, just went nuts and came back and, you know, basically asked to race every race for the rest of the year. I think, it's so long ago now, I can't remember the stat, but it was something insane. I raced like two out of every three days from like August 1st until the end of the year, that year, which as a trend in my career ended up being what I needed, that workload. I remember I just, I went and did a bunch of little stage races in like France and Northern Europe. And then I went and did Tour of Portugal. And that was, Tour of Portugal is a crazy event. It was super cool. And I just started riding better and better the more I was racing. And then I started winning stuff I was still winning smaller level stuff, but I was like basically never outside the top five in a single field sprint, even in Portugal where they're racing on motorcycles. Um, Yeah, I'm more going into like when did you think that you could go and
2: slam with the best of the best and and tour? and when you start really, really winning, like what what you're known of, you go through your your resume.
3: Perry Tours, 2008. I uh, I probably should have won that race. Four guys slipped away. I don't know, on one of those climbs, like those last three climbs at the end. They slipped away. I I was the only guy from the team in a group of, to call it a front group is tough when it's like 120 guys, the Peloton. So I didn't have anyone to chase. And I smoked everybody in the sprint for fifth, uh, like sprinted onto the guy who got fourth's wheel in the sprint. Um, You know, if we'd had one guy to take one pull, I would have won Perry Tours that year. Uh, And that was just like a moment in my head, like, oh, holy shit, I can actually win like one day classics maybe. And yeah, then going into 2009, I was just in a in a totally different place mentally.
0: And yeah, I mean, 2009 and 2010, you were there all the time winning races, winning grand stages and tours. Were those your, your, your best seasons when you look back at it now?
3: Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think you could say my best years were like, nine through 11 but even 11 was a weird year so even like 2009 2010 it was just that weird the stars aligned just seemed like no matter what everything just worked it's in the right headspace always uh the body just kept responding well to whatever i was throwing at it and yeah i just kept winning and it was this weird this weird period in cycling where you know i think after all the scandals everything cleaned up a, a lot everyone they instituted the biological passport Uh, everybody was terrified, you know, that they were going to get caught. So people all quit doping. But it was a bunch of guys who had, you know, most of the Peloton was later in their career and they'd spent their whole career doping. And I don't think they could perform. They didn't understand how to train clean. They didn't understand how to race clean mentally. I think it was too hard for them. So I think there was this window for me in those years where it was like, you know, I was talented enough and I was racing against a bunch of guys who had kind of in a way, broken their engines, or at least mentally broken themselves. It was it's such a hard transition for them to be, you know, not on, on go juice all the time. And yeah, it just worked. Uh, and it worked for a few years. But then every year, more young guys were coming along. who That wasn't a new thing for them. They'd spent their whole life doing it the right way. And, you know, I think that, uh, you know, cycling got a lot slower in 2009, 10, and then it got a lot faster again. Not because of drugs this time, but because of guys who actually trained scientifically and and who did things right.
0: But you as a sprinter, you know, when you look at yourself, your physiology is that of a sprinter. And you're up there. Now you have your headspace right. You're feeling good. You're confident. You know, things are going in the right direction. So you're winning sprints. But for me, you know, you were on a number of Grand Tour winning team time trial teams. And I'm interested to hear how does a sprinter get ready for a team time trial because like most of the sprinters that I knew just could not wait to ha- have that race finish. But like, how, how, do, you know, how does a sprinter go from being a sprinter to being in line and, and being a member of a successful team time trial squad?
3: I don't know. I, I really liked them, uh, which is weird because like physiologically, I don't know. I mean, relative to pro cyclists, I don't have a high VO2 max. I don't like, you know, I, I, am not really built for them in a like, but I, I really like team events. Um, I love like team that, that team cohesion is really important to me. And I, I really kind of thrive on it, I think. And I would get so fired up for those events that, you know, they're just short enough and, you know, I'm not a great I wasn't a great time trialist, but that on-off effort of a team time trial where you could go really hard and then recover a little bit, and go really hard and recover, seemed to play to my strengths a little more. And yeah, I just when you're in a team where that's the culture of it too, it's such a, a goal, you train on it together, everybody's so motivated for it. I think that raises everybody's game a lot. And Yeah, yeah I agree with that because we, we put a lot of emphasis on that in Garmin. It was really part of
2: our culture at the time. Maybe it didn't start off so well in 09 for you, Tyler. I don't want to speak, <laughs> <with>
3: yeah. <laughs> yeah. That was one of the worst team time trials of my career at the 09 tour, but uh, we had some pretty good ones like at the 09 Giro before that, so
2: <laughs> yeah. And then you paid me back later on, but then of course, you know, you fast forward to 2011, the day before you won your stage on July 4th in the Tour de France, winning that was probably one of the biggest coups that ever happened at Garmin. You know, you go from what you were stating about what 08 looked like at slipstream till winning the team time trial and having the yellow jersey with tour
3: yeah i mean the i feel like 2011 was just the the ultimate confirmation year for that team you know i was in their classics team that was you know to start the year wind the year back a little bit even further you know i was i was in their classics team when van summer and one perry roubaix rolled in and, and went to the tour and yeah we Crushed that tour. I mean, we we won four stages as a team. We won the team GC. We had the yellow jersey for like seven or eight days, and it was you know that team. In addition to my personal results throughout uh, my time there, just what that team turned into over the years um, is some one of the things I'm most proud of from my whole career. Uh, You know, I was there for seven years. I feel like I was uh, integral. I like to think I was an integral part of it. Obviously, I wasn't the one you know pulling the strings, but but, you know, I was one of the guys doing all those big races and kind of, I like to think helping shape the the culture of the team at that time. And yeah, it was like, again, one of those moments that month, the stars aligned, like we were just all on our A game and everything just kept going right. It was awesome. It was, you know, in hindsight, yeah. looking back at it is un- unreal the way that tour played out. But, I would but yeah, agree. I think, you know, you, by the end of the 2011 season, we look back on it and we had just you know we'd done so much it was like yeah we're here we're we're one of the best teams in the world and yeah when you think in 2008 it was this upstart team that no one really took seriously and we were riding around in these ridiculous argyle uh, <laughs> joke jerseys and those are horrible they're so bad <laughs> so bad uh, so yeah it was it was like i say when i look back on my career that was one of the things you know other than results that i'm most proud of is what what that team evolved into yeah and I'd have to bring this up just because we're
2: talking about the July 4th and, and your victory salute coming across the line with, with Walter and Walter dying passing away in the Giro earlier that year. Um, and you were best friends. I mean, I used to always joke with you guys, you guys were like dumb and dumber, Seeing you guys <laughs> that's pretty accurate always yeah. laughing all the time and just completely ridiculous. I mean how I mean you don't have to talk about it, but if, we'd love to hear your insight what would that was like?
3: Well, just you guys know me a bit, but to give a, a brief backstory, uh, Wilder and I were the same age. Uh, we'd raced together since we were juniors. I mean, I started going to Belgium as a junior in 2002 and met him. And, you know, we weren't, not that we were like best friends immediately, but when I moved to Ghent in 2007, he's, he grew up there. He was like kind of the king of Ghent in the little local cycling scene. And we just, Hooked up, same age, young guys in in a college town. Uh, we trained together like five days a week. We partied together more than we should have. All that. Um, so yeah, we were pretty tight by that point in 2011. And shit happens in life. It's uh, you know, it's a dark moment. But I was at that Giro when he died. I dropped out, went home to be do the funeral and just be a mess for a little while. And I just got this weird obsession that you know I was gonna win a stage at the Tour de France to you know, honor him. And it was, it was a weird one, honestly. Uh, it, it gave me a, something in the moment to really focus on. Uh, it felt like get my head right. So it was this, a just weird driving goal for that stretch from, you know, the funeral until the tour. But I think it, it was a way of dodging dealing with the deeper issues. Um, that's, bird out of that um, which took a few years to work through uh, afterwards I almost think I mean obviously the way it went I'm glad I was there in 2011 I'm glad it all played out the way it did but at the same time as a person I think I instead of dealing with the issues at the time and just suppressing it all and diving straight back into bike racing uh, it actually set me up for a much harder time uh, a couple years down the road when I couldn't keep repressing all that stuff anymore but uh, I mean that's it gets a little dark, I guess. It's kind of going into a different thing. But, but yeah, it was certainly an amazing thing that actually worked out, and I won the stage and, and could honor him in that way. You know, it's silly. It's not like it doesn't change anything, but for me personally, it felt good. No, it was a it was a,
2: it was a massive moment for, I mean, for all of us. I mean, it was July 4th as American. It's the last time Americans won a, a stage in the Tour de France, and just seeing that picture up there still to this day is, ooh. I mean, you talk, yeah. I got, I got goosebumps talking with you talking about right now, but, um, onward talking about other things about the, di- just differences, the way you prepared things and having your own way. Um, you were one of the early adapters as, as well as for weightlifting. I remember you sending me just ridiculous pictures, like on the Tuesday before you got on the plane to come to the tour, deadlifting or snatch or whatever, cleaning something obnoxious. Um, do you think that was a, a big thing? Do you, you think that was part of your process that helped things out?
3: Yeah, absolutely. I, I mean, I, I doubt there's like any sprinters in the world tour who aren't lifting weights year round right now. You know, I, and I think for what I, I was lucky, I got around the right people, sports science wise that had these ideas. I have a, a really good friend uh, that I've known since I was a kid. He was like a local cat too, when I started bike racing and he, uh, gave me a lot of pointers on just getting started in bike racing, but he also has a, this huge background in physiology and strength training. And he was getting in my ear, you know, I mean, when I was writing for health net, like, you gotta lift weights, you gotta lift weights, you gotta do this, you gotta do that. That was just his ideas. And, you know, I, I was always the, kind of the leading edge of that. I was lifting weights in the winter always, but then I, by 2007, I started lifting year round. And that was also when my sprint all of a sudden got so much better. and. You know, I think it's, it was one of those silly dogmas in cycling. Um, Oh, you can't lift weights. You'll get too big and you'll hurt yourself and this and that. You know, there's so many dumb things like that. And uh, luckily I thought outside the box on those. And yeah, I, I lifted hard year round. I would set like a deadlift PR a week before the tour. Yeah, and then I you know send, it was. You
2: sent me like a picture, like, yeah, this is PR. Never did it. <laughs> Tuesday. The race starts on Saturday. Yeah. Right. You, you got to keep on moving around. And then, end of 2012, I remember some, unfortunately, it had a big string of some gnarly crashes for a while. And it really seemed like that really kicked off. And we've talked about this many times um, just about concussions and like when you really recover for something like that. Um, why don't you talk us through a little bit of that and what we think that could be maybe bettered
3: within the sport or monitored a little bit. So in 2012, uh, I, in the tour of Britain had a massive crash, uh, in, in one of the sprint on the first stage, uh, like smashed my helmets to bits, got up, rolled across the finish line. I don't remember any of this, but apparently it was totally normal. Uh, the race doctor checked me out, said I was fine. Got on the team bus. We drove however many hours to the hotel and didn't talk to anyone on the team bus. Got off the team bus and just classic concussion, just on a loop. What happened? Where are we? What happened? Where are we? Uh, Like, oh, Tyler's Tyler's not okay. So, again, I don't remember any of this. Uh, They got me all checked out. They said, oh, yeah, you had a concussion. And apparently, in uh, the team's infinite wisdom, they gave me the option that you can't fly for 48 hours if you have a concussion. So they gave the super concussed guy the option of uh, you can either get, we'll get you a hotel room for two days here and then you can fly home or you can just take the train home tomorrow. I'm in like Northern England. There's like four changes, multiple trains to get back to Belgium. By yourself? Yeah, and concussed me. was like, oh, I just want to go home. I'll, I'll take the train. The next thing I remember from all that is my landlord at my apartment building and Ghent, coming in at three in the morning. Cause apparently I was sitting there watching like action movies on full volume. And he like lived in the apartment below me and came in just like, what the hell is going on up here? And I I didn't remember that was black next thing I remember. Uh, So somehow I got myself home. I made all the changes and just, yeah, ended up having to go to the hospital, get a bunch of brain scans and stuff uh, and get locked in a dark room for a week. And I was messed up for a while after that. But that was an eye-opening moment for me and for the team because I uh, I went pretty ballistic about that um, playing out the way it did. And I have to say, I don't know what their policies are now, but the, the team instituted uh, what I think is the best concussion policy in cycling, really, and comparing to a lot of other sports, maybe in sport in general at the time, where we had to do these baseline tests. They would establish what's normal for you. And then every time you got a crash, damage your helmet you had to be tested again and it was a, a really effective policy so as is every sport no one took concussion seriously until a few years ago you know everyone just shrugged it off oh you got your bell rung oh you got knocked out ha 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 like we'll get back on your bike keep racing
2: <laughs> yeah know, and, and, it, and, and and a psychopath like yourself you who thinks that they're invincible it doesn't yeah. they don't care if you if you told you that you could race without a helmet you could
3: go faster you would have done it oh i just because he told me i look cooler i would have done it I didn't even need to go faster. (laughs) Yeah. And I mean, that me now, obviously my perspectives changed a little bit, but, but yeah, I think, you know, cycling started to wake up to it. I mean, you know, everyone talks about CTE in football and it's a big deal, but you have to realize that the crashes that we sustain in cycling, the forces are so much higher than the hardest hit that exists in football, like an average impact in a bike crash. Is harder than the hardest hit a football player takes. Now, granted, they take multiple hits throughout the whole game, but but yeah, I think cycling for the long time really didn't take seriously head trauma. You know, you talk to a lot of ex pros, and they've all had that one major head trauma that that changed things for them. Luckily, I don't, I didn't have like lasting deficits from that 2012 crash, but it made me the rest of my career super hyper vigilant about you know head trauma in general and taking care of yourself in the aftermath of it and and kind of aware from my teammates you know i remember having discussions with team doctors after one of my teammates crashed uh later in my career so like you can't let this guy keep racing oh no he'll be fine He'll be fine he's okay I'm like no like i talked to him i watched the crash i talked to him the dude's concussed like second impact syndrome is a real thing he could die like you need to stop this and you know, I I became within my own teams a pretty big advocate of taking head trauma seriously after that.
0: And you have to be have to be proud of that. I mean, obviously, it takes that one person to kind of start, you know, that that process going, which it sounds like your your team at that time did. But to get to to kind of like bookend this, we talked about you being on Kofidis, kind of you know young, green, kind of suffering, finding your your legs at at Garmin. Tell me tell me a little bit about your final couple years on dimension data. Did you feel like you took more of a mature teammate mentor role there in the last couple years of your career?
3: I stopped being a top sprinter in 2013 in reality, not in my head, but in reality. you know I, w- I was definitely a second tier sprinter um, at that point uh, moving forward. but I still kind of chased my tail for a couple years trying to still be the guy I was in 2010, 2011. And I just I wasn't as fast as the new guys. The new generation was just better than me. I think by the end of 2014, I started to actually come to terms with that and accept it. And uh, this opportunity with Dimension Data came along. At the time, it was MTN Quebeca, uh, similar to the the beginning of of Garmin. You know, it was this development team, a like Pro Continental team who was trying to make the jump to the big time, uh, and they. They contacted me and said, "This is what we're putting together. We'd like you to be a part of it." And I saw that as an opportunity to kind of reinvent myself uh, for the rest, the tail end of my career. I didn't want to be the guy who chased and chased and took all the risks when, if everything went right, I'd get fourth or fifth place. That wasn't worth it to me anymore. I wasn't taking satisfaction out of that. But by that point in my career, I'd been a pro for a really long time. I had a lot of experience, and it gave me the chance to move into a road captain's position and and take a completely different. Job on, uh, which was nice. It was challenging in new ways, which I like. It was get, getting to use my head uh, in a different way than just thinking about a sprint in a bike race. And yeah, I'm. You know, again, I got to be a part of two teams that started low and built into some pretty amazing organizations over the course of a couple years. And you know, being, being able to kind of shape the the trajectory on uh, those early days of those teams was really fun. You're saying that you're older. You've been long for, but you're still just the fact that you. Turn pro when you were a
2: teenager, you're still were young when you're. Yeah, really, I mean, I you're mean my whole 30. career, every
3: everybody thought I was way older than I was because again, I turned pro. I mean, I was still 18 in my first pro race. And, you know, I, I ended up hanging out like with you guys. Like I hung out with an older crowd. And after a while, everyone just assumed I was the same age as everybody I was hanging out with. And when I retired, going, like, yeah, I think it's time to hang it up. You know, I've been a pro for how many years? Fifteen years. You know, that's a good long career. People are like, and but then like people who didn't know me through my whole career, are like you're thirty three years old. That's the dumbest thing I've ever heard. I'm like, I'm tired, guys. I'm. <laughs> it's, yeah. it's time to hang this up. So yeah, and, I think
2: and, and you did quietly as well, Ty. I mean, you were. I mean, you were never had a, a presence on social media. Nothing. I mean, they're zilch. I mean, the only people that ever had access was with us within within the team bus, or you did the random interview with somebody that you felt comfortable with and even then you were, probably weren't giving much away so you just kind of went away and but you already had this new life waiting <laughs> in the wings and you're like been quiet about that you didn't tell anyone about that
3: either oh yeah I've been I've been laying I've been laying bricks on that foundation for a couple of years when I when I pulled the trigger and uh and quit cycling I love bike racing I love I love having goals I love like you know, having an objective that I was preparing for and building towards. I really love being a part of a team that had an objective that we were preparing for and building towards. That was what I got off on in, in cycling, you know, like, like just goal setting and achieving those goals. I hated any aspect of publicity or celebrity or any of that. Like, I remember I was still like, it was great in the peak years of my career being on the team with you because we'd go to the tour and everyone wanted to talk to you and David Miller and, and Ryder. And I could just kind of like fly under the radar and do my thing. Uh, You know, it, it, I hated, hated talking to the press. I was so uncomfortable with it. I don't know. I could fake it, but, but it wasn't, it wasn't something I, I craved. It, it, it made it hard for me. And I mean, that's why I was never on social media. I don't, I don't want publicity I just want to do my thing I want to live you know all of my life I I'm, I'm, i don't keep it secret from my f- friends what I'm doing it's not that it's I just don't need to broadcast it and and yeah I, I you know I, I hated the celebrity aspect well, why, don't, why, don't a, you, why don't you
2: want you you start talking about what what those lane of bricks were all about and explain that a little bit what you're doing last year in dimension yeah
3: Zero? um so you know I was I was writing for for DD Uh, those last years, I was really enjoying the team captain's role. Um, But I also started to realize I was getting slower, or the peloton was getting faster. I don't know what it was. Um, But it was getting to the point that by 2017, I didn't feel like I was even on a physical level that I was able to do my job as well as I felt like I should. So uh, I'd always kind of had in the back of my head I wanted to be a firefighter I mean going back to like high school I, I thought that would be a pretty cool path to go down obviously bike racing was there for me and I took it but yeah it just sat in the back of my through my whole career is well, what am I going to do when I'm done being a bike racer and I kind of liked that idea so yeah starting even in 2016 I started researching and okay what how do I set myself up for success again goal setting and and working towards goals and you know I started doing like Online classes to to get certifications to kind of buff my resume within you know the fire service for applying to departments and and learning as much as I could and yeah in 2017 I was like by mid season I just realized it wasn't working anymore and I still had a year of contract left and I ended up having to have that awkward meeting with management uh, luckily who I had a really good relationship with and said look as the team captain, if you want me to give my input on selecting writers for teams, I wouldn't select myself. Like you got more guys who are better than me. Uh, I was like, I think we, you know, it's not that I don't want to be here with you guys anymore. I just don't want to be here anymore. Period. You know, I got them to, they let me out of my contract a year early. We'll let you um, wait a second.
2: Wait, let's back up. You don't, you, you had, you're going to get paid like a significant amount of money. Next year, and you, you walked away from it. Let's put it that way. Yeah, I
3: was getting a raise the next year. Um, yeah, come on. I was on one of those like two-stage contracts. Uh, but no, I I didn't like it anymore. I wasn't happy. Uh, I really wasn't happy. I mean, Christian, you know me. I'm one of the most competitive people ever, I think. I, I hate not winning or being a part of winning. And I didn't feel like I was even contributing to the team anymore. I was just miserable at bike races because I, I just felt like I was hanging on for dear life. And I was just chasing my tail. I, and like I said, I didn't want to be doing it anymore when it was like that. I didn't take pleasure in it. And I think there's an interesting thing. And I've watched a lot of guys when they retire, when you start think, planning too hard for the future, it's an indicator that things are going to start going downhill in bike racing. And I think I'd already planned too hard for the future in a way. And I was so eager to get started on that aspect of it that, yeah, the, it all just lined up. I, I didn't think doing another year was right for me. I also, you know, I had some big crashes throughout my career. Uh, I think in ways I was famous for big crashes, but somehow it skated through it without really that life-altering injury.
0: But isn't that what it is? I mean, I think every pro cyclist has that moment when he's done. And I always tell people, hey, listen, you got to make sure that you leave it all out on the road or you're going to definitely have some regrets moving forward. Your transition from retirement into real life is, for me, uh, despite all your amazing accomplishments, your trials and tribulations throughout your career, that transition to me is so much more important in such a bigger part of the story. Like Christian said, you left money on the table to come home, to pay your own way, and to addition to become a fireman and 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 an EMT. Like, this is not a normal thing that selfish cyclists, and we're all selfish. Ask our wives, ask our kids. You know, we're probably the most selfish athletes on the planet. But, like, you just totally broke the mold there. And to me, that's the most interesting thing about you is going from one of the best sprinters, if not the best sprinter, of your generation, and then wanting to help people. I mean, tell, tell us a little bit about that transition from being the star athlete to basically having to audition and pay your own way to become part of the, you know, our frontline defense, especially now during this pandemic.
3: Yeah. In the early part of my cycling career, I was just focused on cycling. I mean, I just wanted to win bike races. I was in the zone. Um, but as my career went on, I think I I started to struggle with the fact of how selfish being a professional athlete is, just period. I mean, your job is to train and eat right and sleep right and just baby yourself at all times. It's fun. It's, it's really fun. But I, I did really struggle with that. I felt like I wasn't doing anything kind of useful in ways that I felt like I could be, uh, the ways that I wanted to be. And you know, there, there's a lot of cool things you can do like charity wise and this with your celebrity, but I had spent an entire career avoiding any form of celebrity. So I didn't feel like that was a good route for me to do to try to to make, you know, real impacts on the world. The more I started researching, the more I realized just what a good fit it was going to be for my personality, what I wanted to do with the rest of my life, uh, how I wanted to approach things. And I just, I kind of viewed it as a way to, to yeah, make make a positive impact, but not not in a flashy way. It's not that I don't, I don't want I'm to, I'm not, I'm not trying to like, Ooh, look at me. I'm making a positive impact. Just like, you know, be there and, and do the, do what you can do the right things. And, and yeah, it ended up being a crazy, easy transition for me. Like culturally there's so many weird overlays between being on a professional sports team and being on a, on a crew in a fire station. It's a, uh, you know, is this that same dynamic? in so many ways. So that was really easy. And I think just having that goal already dangling before, I mean, when I still had a year left in contract, just made that transition seamless because, you know, I just went from one obsession to the next. I went from being obsessed with being a pro cyclist to being obsessed with becoming a firefighter and, and, you know, giving, giving all my focus into that. I will say like whenever someone asks me how's transition been, how's the other,
2: how your friends transitioning, how's Tyler? Like, well, let me just stop you right there. Tyler has won the transition games. Um, <laughs> he's, he's been easily the most seamless through everything. And, and, and for all those reasons, especially when you explain your day-to-day life over there, it's no different than being on the bus at times. But you're, yeah. okay, you're not going to get out of this room without talking about your Rona story. I remember I was doing voice and, yes. candy, and you and um, you called me up and you said, I got the Rona And, uh, give give us, give us a little blow by blow how that all went from like sitting in in the driveway waiting for Steph to wake up and cause you didn't want to go into the house and get contaminated. And this was early doors. We have to, was this like March 10th, 12th, something like that? Uh, No,
3: like March 1st, like really, really earlier, earlier. Yeah. So obviously, you know, that had been rumbling in the news since, you know, January over, over in Asia. Uh, it wasn't that people didn't know it existed but we were going to work, just doing everything as normal, following our normal protocols on all our medical calls and all that. And then, uh, came into onto duty one morning and had all these, okay, like whole new thing. When you show up, you have to like decon this whole rig. It's like, what's going on? Like all these new, like, like, all of a sudden all our rigs were being treated like a, like a hazmat scene. And, uh, it was like, like, what is this? And basically we'd found out that, uh, Coronavirus had entered uh, our community where we serve very badly. We ended up being one of the early epicenters in the U.S. So we ended up like a third of our department had been exposed um, without even knowing it before we were wearing all the proper PPE because we were treating these patients who were positive and we didn't know yet. We didn't even know it was in America. So a bunch of us got quarantined and isolated and and all that. I was on duty and ended up yeah you know getting that exposure and. So I was sick and I came home. I am coming home from work sick. Uh, I could just, you know, feel it coming on. And, uh, you know, I didn't know I had it yet, but I had this, I had symptoms. And they were like, yeah, you need to isolate yourself. And yeah, I pulled up into the driveway and, you know, I, we, uh, we do shift chains pretty early. My, my wife and my kid were still asleep. And just like, okay. And I like dove into our guest bedroom and sent her a bunch of messages like, don't come in here. <laughs> I mean, I'm in isolation. uh We're gonna figure this out as it goes, and then over the next few days, like, yeah, I was sick, and you know, she, he was a champ. I mean, she like delivered food to my door, picked up the dirty dishes, uh and I stayed fully isolated in our guest bedroom for a long time. Um, all right, let,
2: let, now let, let's fast forward to like now you're kind of semi all clear, and this again, we don't know what all clear even means. Still, this is this is when. Mid March, third Pyrenees, yeah, and, and your chief is calling you, how, and to check in on you. And well, the you're best part is, biking.
3: yeah. So the best part is, uh, by the time I back then, it was really slow to even. It's hard to get tested. Once you got tested, it took days to get the results. Um, so yeah, I was sick. I was like, I was sick for three days, and then I started feeling better. Got tested. By the time I got my results back, I was totally healthy again. Like 100% healthy, felt normal. And I remember they call me and it's it's like, like guess the doctor giving you like a death sentence news is like, <laughs> I, I've got something I got to tell you, um, you tested positive for, for COVID-19. And uh, it's like, huh, three days ago, that would have been pretty scary. Uh, I'm fine now. So what do we do? <laughs> like, and uh, I end up, ha- because I was the first uh, firefighter in the US to test positive for it, apparently. Um, there was no protocols in place for how, how that's dealt with, uh, how do you get cleared to return to work. How long do you even need to be isolated for? I mean, this was brand new. So everybody was making it up as they went. And yeah, I ended up having to just kind of sit around totally healthy, isol- in isolation for weeks, uh, while they decided how, when I would be cleared to, to go back to work. It was a, it was a weird stretch, but yeah, I'm, after a while I was like, just started doing projects in my yard. You know, it's like still trying to avoid my family because no one really knew yet if, you know, if I was a risk to people or not. So, you know, when my, when my kid would go down for his nap every afternoon, I'd go and just do these insane yard projects and just go run around in circles and (laughs) try to burn off energy. Uh, But yeah, March was not a super fun month.
0: So when did, when did you, uh, when were you allowed to go back on the front lines? Because it seems like, you know, you were one of the first people in the country and you said the first fireman in the country to get it. So there was a lot of like, I don't know, I don't know. But then from what we're told, you it once exposed and once you get healthy and test negative, then you're immune. So were you going back onto the front lines? Kind of, I don't know, feeling like Superman a little bit, like you could get in there without having to risk anything anymore?
3: Yeah, it was funny. In hindsight now I could have gone back to work way earlier than I did. Like I say, they were trying to figure out when when was it safe for me to go back to work. They don't want me exposing the other people on my crew. You know, they they just wanted want to make sure it was safe for me to be there on the line working. So yeah, I sat out for a few weeks. I think I I went back like right around the end of March. Uh I got cleared to return to work. And yeah, since then you know, we have all these crazy protocols in place now. The amount of like PPE we're wearing on every call is is so much more than what we used to do before all this. And I, I still wear all the PPE. It's not like I you know, I'm not like cavalier about it. I don't I don't just go in there with no nothing on, but uh, but I think my level of stress is is definitely a lot lower than all my coworkers who, who haven't had it because yeah, I know I know I do have those antibodies, I do have that, you know, immunity. What no one knows is how long that immunity the last for at this point in time but but yeah it's uh it's definitely been a bit of a stress reliever for me personally now going forward after that but it was pretty horrible like sitting in in isolation for those weeks and you know what else do you have all day to kill just watching the news and reading the news constantly and just seeming feeling like so crappy that all all the all the people I work with are there dealing with it on the front lines and I'm totally healthy sitting here in the guest bedroom at my house, like staring at the wall. I felt super guilty about that for quite a while. Um, So I was really relieved when I got to go back to work and and actually feel like I was doing something again. But by the time I got back to work, it had really settled down in our city. And and we basically have been really quiet uh, since then. Our call volumes are way down. So I kind of realized all this guilt I was feeling was maybe a little unnecessary.
0: But but I have to say, you made it real. You know, you would talk with Christian, Christian would talk with George and I, and you made it real back when it was really a, a non-issue here in South Carolina. And it just seemed like you kind of saw the forest through the trees from day one. And I remember Christian saying, yeah, I just got off the phone with Tyler. He told me to go get some, some, uh, some masks because there's probably going to be a, a rush on the masks here soon. And I'm like, I was at Home Depot like the next day and I didn't even think of doing that the the KN masks. And then all of a sudden it became real and I'm just like, man, like that's why I wanted to have you on our podcast to tell this story because it was everything that was in the news. Christian was telling telling us either over the phone or on a on a little bike ride and it was just such an amazing story. I mean, Tyler, you've had an amazing cycling career, but what you're doing now is just so incredible and we thank you for your service with all the other frontline people out there helping people and um just thank you so much for taking the time to to be on our on our show today
3: Um, Um, thanks i mean and honestly like the you guys don't have to thank for that like we're a bunch of like dumb kids playing with cool toys at the fire service it's like, <laughs> get to ride around on the fire truck and play with the sirens and like, it's not a big sacrifice man, we're, we're having a good time so thank you and and yeah I'm, uh, I'm glad to be here and that's
0: it that's all we have time for this week hope you enjoyed this episode and thanks again to Tyler Farrar and Christian Vandeveld for sitting in You can find all of our past episodes as well as a ton of other fantastic journalism over at VelaNews.com. You can subscribe at Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Spotify, or whatever your favorite go-to podcast site may be. Just search for Put Your Socks On or Fizzo, P-Y-S-O. Please continue to show your support by subscribing to this program. And please spread the word by telling your friends about us. Get on to us at social media. Fizzopod, P-Y-S-O-P-O-D on Twitter at ThatIsGus and myself at Bobby.Julik on Instagram. Reach out to us there. Give us some suggestions on future shows, feedback, or just say hello. Until next week, thanks for taking time out of your day to listen. Christian, thank you very much for for joining us and uh, filling in for Gus. Stay safe. Stay sane. And don't forget to put your socks on.
2: So I was just wondering if, if, if you let on to what your true past was like, what you, your true identity is, what's going on between your two years these days in, in, in the firehouse? or Have you just been keeping it low as a as, you new... Know,
3: uh, I mean, I'm, I'm starting at the bottom of the totem pole again, you know? So, yeah, like like people on my crew know me now. Um, you can't spend that amount of time together with people without things starting to slip out a little bit. I'll try to keep my, my less glorious moments from my past. <laughs> <I> don't <laughs> broadcast those yet. But, yeah, I think people realize I like to... I like to train really hard, so I've been come up with these crazy firefighter workouts for the crew to do at, at the station and doing all this dumb stuff, working out on air and taking it, you know, trying to apply my approach to firefighting like I did to training to be a pro cyclist. But, but yeah, I mean, I don't know. It, over time, maybe that'll filter out, you know, as people do more dumb adventures with me on my cruise and and all that. So, so Bobby, Tyler asked me to go and do,
2: at first it was a two day, 76 mile hike up in the <laughs> mountains. And then he, he scaled down. Okay, well, it's not, we're gonna do it in three days. It won't be easy, only 25 some miles a day. I'm like, you, no, no way.
0: Whoop is a fitness wearable that provides personalized insights on the performance of your sleep, how recovered your body is, and how much stress and exertion you put on your body throughout the day.
1: Each day when you get up, WHOOP gives you a recovery score based on your sleep, resting heart rate, and heart rate variability that can be used as an indicator for how to approach your day.
0: The app has built-in features like Strain Coach, which gives you target exertion goals to work out optimally at your body's recovery level. WHOOP automatically detects and categorizes your activity so there's no need to start and stop your workout.
1: You can analyze your heart rate throughout the entirety of your workout and also track your calories burned, max heart rate, and average heart rate. It's the perfect way to train.
0: The app also has a built-in sleep coach, which lets you know how much sleep you should be getting based on your expected activity level for the following day.
1: So you can wake up and be recovered based on your performance goals. Whoop is offering 15% off with the code VELONEWS at checkout. Go to whoop, W-H-O-O-P.com and enter VELONEWS at the checkout to save 15%.
0: Sleep better,
1: recover faster,
0: and train smarter.
1: Optimize your performance with Whoop today.